um, been a part of Church on Bayshore for 20-something years, for a very long time. Um, happy to always come home to First Baptist Church on Bayshore. Um, <laughs> old habits. Um, but like Justin was saying, I am a missionary in Uganda, one of the missionaries that this church supports. I'm there through one more child, Florida Baptist Children's Home, and been there for almost five years, which is wild. Um, but God's doing amazing things, which y'all will see next year when we send a team to Uganda. Get excited, um, like I am. Uh, but yeah, just happy to be with y'all this morning. Um, Niceville's always going to be home, even though Uganda's also home, but just always happy to come home. So let's read in Mark chapter 12, our passage for today. Mark chapter 12. I'm sure it will be on the screen. There you go. All right, it says, beginning with verse, verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent, them, sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and, is it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, church family, before we get into the word this morning, we just wanna take a moment, Roger and Kay Barry, if you guys would join me. We wanna pray for Laura. It's our privilege to partner with you and what God is doing through you uh, in Uganda. And uh, we, just, uh, we just really do consider it one of our joys. And so we just wanna spend some time praying with you. So if you would join me in praying for Laura. Um, Father, we just thank you for your grace. And we thank you um, for your mission uh, that you have that was clearly revealed to us in Christ's coming. Uh, that you want to rescue people uh, for you and to see you and your glory and your goodness. And God, you promise that you're with us. And so, Lord, we know that Laura knows that because of you and because of Christ. But as a church family, it's our desire to remind her of that regularly, that she is not alone, that God is with her and that his uh, family uh, is here supporting her. So God, I thank you for the ways that this church has uh, come alongside her and supported her through prayer, through uh, financial giving, through other means. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would continue to strengthen her. Lord, we pray that you would continue to protect her, Lord God, and that you would continue to give her wisdom and humility as she serves others. We pray that you bless um, just uh, everything uh, that she does in a way that just continually points her to you and your goodness and the growth of your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for um, the opportunity that we get to be a part of your work of bringing people to see how good you are. And so, God, we consider it a joy 
uh, that we get to be a partner with Laura, God. And so we just pray you would continue to be with her uh, as only you can. God, even as we open your word this morning and look into it, uh, God, we pray that you would bless it and we pray that you would show us how we could be more in line with what you've called us to be in our lives. We love you and it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, and we love you, Laura. So. Mm-hmm. All right. I got two microphones, so beware. Um, hey, I do want to say uh, that, you know, one thing as a believer, we recognize, you're coming to get the microphone from me. He was scared, so he, he heard the beware, and so he came and got the microphone from me. Um, one thing is, as a believer, you know, God calls all of us to live our lives on mission. And so some, he might draw our hearts to move um, across uh, the world. Some, uh, through our job, uh, and we will get paid by the U.S. Uh, government to move and be a missionary wherever we are. And some of us are that right here. And I do believe that the Lord is really uh, helping us as a church to get what it means to live sent. And I think uh, that's a big reason why last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, we have had over 1,300 people uh, in attendance, which is the more than we've ever had in the history of this church in 112 years. So praise Jesus. Praise Jesus for that. But one thing we say around here is that numbers don't end a conversation, they start a conversation. And perhaps you were one of those numbers uh, last Sunday who were visiting with us for the first time. And I just want to say to you that we're so glad that you're here uh, again. And we would love to help you get connected into the life of our church. We'd love to know you. Uh, You can stop by the welcome uh, desk or one of the welcome uh, areas on your way off campus this morning, or you can text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen and uh, one of our Connect team members will follow up with you this week. And as you saw in the video, one of the best ways that you can really get connected into the life of, of the church and uh, become who God has created you to be is through uh, life groups. And so we hope that you will uh, at least start checking out some life groups. Maybe you have a friend who's already a part of one and you'll start going with them. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're back today, or, or maybe you've been coming, or maybe today's your first day, uh, we're starting a new series called Jesus Changes Everything as we look at the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. And today's text that Laura read is really helping us to see the meta narrative. It's helping us to see the big picture of God's relationship with us and what God is doing in this world. Often we might have the question, Is God really involved in the world? I think a lot of people who claim Christianity um, really function more as Christian deist. A deist is someone who believes that God created, but then he kind of let everything go for itself. And so they don't necessarily feel a personal connection with the God that they might even say they believe in. I've heard people often say, you know, I just don't hear from God. I haven't heard from God. And so what I hope that I can show you by looking further at the text today is that we do hear from God and what God is trying to tell us. So let's begin by just reflecting on the story that Jesus told that Laura just read for us. So it was common that wealthy Jews or foreign landowners would rent out their land to tenant farmers in the days of Jesus. So this landowner that we read about in Mark chapter 12 had planted a vineyard. He put a fence up to protect that vineyard from people walking through and from animals. He dug a pit for the wine press, verse 1 tells us. And so then tenants work it. They, they work the vineyard to produce the fruit of the vine. 
and the landowner's payment or rent would be a portion of that fruit which he and the tenant farmers would agree upon. Now, it was commonplace that the, the landowners would be harsh with his tenants. So, you know, he would, sometimes it was almost a form of slavery. It was certain, a, you know, form of oppression. They were trapped and didn't have another opportunity. And so he would also often cheat them. And you can read ancient writings that depict this as commonplace. But in the story that Jesus is telling, the scene is reversed. And so those who are listening to this story would think this is unusual. This is peculiar. And so the landowner sends his servants to collect rent, to collect what he's due. And the tenant farmers not only refuse payment, but they beat and kill servants who were sent to collect. So then the landowner sends his son, thinking surely they will get the seriousness of my request. They know my power. They know my wealth. They know my influence, and they know how important a son is. And they kill him. And they thought, now we can own this land. So what will the landowner do? Jesus asked. They refused payment. They rejected his servants. And they killed his son. And Jesus says he's going to come back and he's going to deal with these wicked tenants, and he's going to get his vineyard back. Now, what does this mean? That's the part of Bible study that's called interpretation. What, what does this actually mean? What is being said here? Well, those who he was speaking to knew what he was saying. Look at what verse 12 says again. It says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They perceived that he told the parable against them. Them is the religious leaders. Even though in our Bibles there's a chapter break from chapter 11 to chapter 12, the scene has not changed. Jesus is speaking with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the religious leaders of Israel. So, so what I want you to do to understand the meaning of this parable is I want to explain who the characters in this parable are. The characters in this parable. First, the tenants are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. If you've been with us for some of our journey through the Gospel of Mark, then you've seen the religious leaders who are supposed to be the stewards of the message of God, the law of God, and um, ultimately facilitating a people who worship God. They have, by and large, perverted the whole thing because of earthly desires that are getting in the way of the purity of God's purpose. Religion, if you will call it that, has become about what they can get from God whether it be on an individual level or on a collective level. And they know what Jesus is saying to them. The landowner is God. A common reference by Jesus and a common reference in their culture was the idea of God being a master or a landowner. He is the one 
who we are accountable to. The vineyard is Israel. Israel is referred to as the vineyard several times in the Old Testament. Perhaps most explicitly in Isaiah chapter 5 when God says that he is letting the vineyard be trampled over because it's not producing fruit. God cared very much about the fruit of the kingdom coming through Israel. The servants that, that are sent in the story are the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament who God has sent to call for repentance. The word servants is actually used for prophets often in the Old Testament. And mistreatment of those prophets was commonplace and it was proverbial in the culture in Jesus' day. And it was clear in Scripture that they had been rejected by the religious leaders, by the people of Israel, and most notably at this time, now with John the Baptist. And lastly, the son is Jesus. God sending his son to bring the message of repentance. And Jesus isn't telling this story just to be entertaining. He's teaching something very important. He's trying to get their attention. And here are the implications of what he is trying to say. I want to talk about the implications of this parable. Because this story is rather easy to absorb. A quick glance at the Old Testament lets us know who it alludes to and what is the real meaning of this is what we then must ask. There are two things that I think we should understand from this. First is this. God's judgment is on those who have rejected his message because they wanted the fruit of God's kingdom for themselves. God's judgment is on those who have rejected his message because they wanted the fruit of God's kingdom for themselves. Jesus paints a picture of the tenants who work the vineyard and reject the messengers of the owner. Obviously, to not have to give what they owe to him. They have forgotten reality. But it's not just that they've been deceived. It's not just that they are ignorant. Jesus says in verse 7 that they say, let's kill the son so that we can have his inheritance. And Mark's gospel says that Jesus says in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, Matthew tells us this, this was actually a dialogue. So it was a question and answer. Matthew chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 40, says that Jesus asked, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. It's amazing how clear we are able to see the truth when our emotions are not attached to that truth. But Jesus is talking about them. Jesus says, and as we go on in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, in the same way, you, remember he is talking to the religious leaders, will no longer be trusted with my kingdom. It is going to the hands of others who will work the vineyard. You see, Israel views themselves as unconditional heirs to the promise of God. They have come to believe that no matter what they do, they will receive the blessings of God. Luke tells us in chapter 20, verse 16, that when Jesus says this, he says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Not us. Do you know who we are? Do you know what family we come from? But God is not indifferent. And because God is not indifferent, God is just. Or because God is just, he is not indifferent. And to execute justice, for there to be justice, there has to be judgment. We have a whole legal system that is flawed but is based on this that there needs to be justice, and so there has to be judges. There are laws, and so God cares very much about justice, and he is not flawed. And so God judges. There are two things that God cares about that we see in this text. The fruit of the vine and his son. God cares about the fruit of the vine. This parable is about fruit. What did the master want? What did he want? Fruit. Okay, three of you are paying attention. He wanted fruit. What did they refuse to give to him? Fruit. So what was the moving forward then? The master is going to make sure that his vineyard produces fruit. God wants the fruit of his kingdom. A commentary from the Qumran community on Isaiah chapter 5, which is the passage that talks about the vineyard of Israel being trampled over, says the problem was not a vineyard that yielded bad fruit, but it was the tenants who yielded no fruit from the vine. You see, God has a will, and God cares very much about that will happening. And he expects that those who he has gifted the opportunity to be stewards of his kingdom ought to do his will. And there is judgment on those who have said, forget the landowner, let's eat, drink, and be merry. But notice the most striking thing about this passage. It's not just that they have rejected and killed the messengers, but they reject the son. God cares about the fruit of the vine, and God cares about his son. And there is a spiritual blindness of the audience that Jesus is talking to to know that they, as Israel, rejected the prophets and to not see what is in their own heart in their rejection of the prophets. And so in grace in the parable, the landowner sends his son. He didn't have to do that. He had sent service and they reject servants and they reject them. But in grace, he now sends the son thinking they will get it now. And they reject him too, and they kill him. And Jesus says to, in the parable, Mark chapter, Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, verse 10, 
as he closes, have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote of Psalm 118. A part of Psalm 118 was chanted when Jesus entered into Jerusalem just a few days earlier. This psalm is repeated several times in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. It deals with a stone. The builders looked at and said, it doesn't fit. And so it's rejected and it's thrown away. But as they try to build, they realize this is actually what fits perfectly. It's what is needed as the cornerstone to build. And Jesus says, I'm like that. Jesus is speaking from the perspective of the end game, of the Father's will. And this is the other thing we see in this text, is that God's plan of a fruitful kingdom is assured through Christ. God's plan of a fruitful kingdom is assured through Christ. Jesus is continuing to clarify who he is in the kingdom. He is not a prophet. He is the son of God. He is the cornerstone. He knows that they are opposed to him. He knows that they resent him. He knows that murder is in the air. He understands exactly what it is they are doing. And so in telling the story with them present, he is actually looking into the faces of the people he is describing. So that what is obvious to us as the reader now is becoming apparent to them in the immediacy of the telling of the story. Following the death and the resurrection of Jesus, one of the repentance for our share in the crime of killing the son is now a part of the confession. In Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, when Peter preached the gospel message, he said, Jesus, whom you crucified, you must believe in him. In Daniel's prophecy, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, the prophet said, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it is broken in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Now, there were those who, when they first heard this prophecy, believed that that meant that Israel would stand, but what would happen soon would prove that not to be true because uh, the Babylonians would uh, capture the temple, they would destroy the temple. And so then Nehemiah would eventually go be back and lead Israel to rebuild the temple. But, and so those who then heard the prophecy said, okay, well, now again, the kingdom's gonna stand forever. And yet, they were never really had freedom. They were under Roman rule. And then shortly after the ascension of Jesus, um, the, under Nero, the Romans uh, would destroy Rome. And Antiochus Epiphanes would actually have a pig slaughtered on the altar of the temple. And the temple would be destroyed. And so what God is doing here is he's getting people's attention 
to, to what is really the work that is happening. And the work that is happening is he is building his kingdom not on any man, but on the Son of God himself. He is the cornerstone. He is how God is building his kingdom. And he is trying to help this group who he's talking to to understand this. Now, what does that mean for you and me? And that's what I want to talk about now are the applications of this parable, what it means for us. Again, we have this landowner. He plants a vineyard. He builds a fence around it. He digs a wine press. He hires tenant farmers. They don't give him the fruit that he deserves. So then he sends servants. They reject the servants. So then he sends his son, and they reject the son, thinking, hey, now we can be the heirs. We can have his inheritance. We can have this for ourselves. God is the landowner. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The servants are the prophets of the Old Testament, and the prophets God is sending, and the son is Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, God wants people for himself who produce the fruit of the kingdom. And we need to repent if we are not. You see, this morning you are either striving to be fruitful for God or you are trying to use the vineyard for yourself. And God is trying to tell you that he wants you to produce fruit. God is speaking to you. God speaks to us through creation. The rocks cry out to the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. There is something by just walking outside that causes you to realize how small you are and that there is a reality that exists outside of yourself. We live in a day and age where, that says everything that is in our heart is a reality and is true, but this is a, a separation from what people have thought over the course of human history and from what makes logical sense. You see, if you were to examine the seven billion people that exist in our world today and the billions and billions of people who have ever lived, by far the majority, default thinking is that there is something bigger than me. Only in what we call intellectualism and secular progressivism have we come to the idea that there is not something bigger than us. And so creation is crying out to you, there is something besides yourself. There is something more to life. There is a greater purpose for you. You are part of something much bigger than what you just see in the immediacy around you. God is also speaking to us through other people. Perhaps, unlike me, you had parents who taught you about who God was, taught you about the importance of reconciling your life to him and, and finding your purpose in him. Perhaps it's sermons. You've heard sermons and God has spoke to you through pastors. God has spoke to you through teaching. God has spoke to you through books. Maybe it's friends who've been in your life. God speaks to us through other people. God also speaks to us through the scriptures. I'm a logical thinker, but when I began to get into the word, and read it, it was like the words jumped off the page in a way that I could not even explain. Now, as I understand, it's because they're true, and they're written and inspired by God, and they've stood the test of time. I get that more. But for you, perhaps, it's just like you've heard the word, you've read the word, and it's speaking to you. 
Maybe it's the circumstances in your life that have drawn you to a place where you're at the end of yourself or you've constantly seen God's protection and hand on you. And these things, God is speaking to you. And listen, this is either resulting in you changing to say, I want to be fruitful for God, or it's resulting in a hardening of your heart to the message of God because you want to preserve the fruit for yourself. Alistair Begg articulates it this way, unless the wooings and the warnings of God's word soften your heart and bring you to faith, they will harden your heart and turn you against him. You see, we like to say that the word doesn't return void because the scripture says that, and it's true. But what we need to understand is that when the word is taught when the word is read it does one of two things it saves and it condemns you see the word of God actually pronounces judgment on those who do not turn to God and something you and I need to understand about ourselves is that we're instinctively people who decide we don't want to obey God And we don't want to hear that we are wrong. And no matter who God uses to tell us this, for some of you, you won't change. Even if he sends his son. When the rich man is in hell and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to tell his relatives about heaven and hell, about eternity, the reply is this. Even if someone rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Someone has risen from the dead. And you still won't change. And you still don't believe. You still don't want to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. So I would ask you this question, how do you view people telling you to turn to Jesus? A lot of times when I talk to people about ways that their life isn't in line with what the scripture says, they say that I'm judgmental. And while I'll confess that I need to continually, I mean, the prayer of my heart is be more gentle. The reality is, if I'm telling you what God says, then I'm not being judgmental. I'm just telling you what the judge says. And you should be very concerned with where you stand with the judge. How do you view people who have spoken into your life in these ways. How do you view the son coming? For some of you, when you think about Jesus coming and him inviting you to live a life for God, it actually makes you feel judged. But that is not what it is, and you need to understand that. It exposes the sin in our lives, but it is not what brings judgment. John 3.16 is a very familiar passage, probably the most familiar passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. But verse 17 says, for God did not send in his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. For you are already condemned, it goes on to say. You see, you are condemned If you are living your life apart from what does God want for me and for my life. And so Jesus is sent to save you because like the tenants 
You are not giving God what he deserves, and that is your life. And we have it backwards often when we think about people telling us that or when we think about Jesus coming to say this. When Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, I want you to notice something in this text. They reject God together. And the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, were complicit with one another in their religion that rejected the prophets and the Son. And so do not think just because you have found a group that validates your way of living that you are where you should be with God. You think, well, my family, this is how we do life. Or you think, you know, I have my group of friends. Or, well, hey, you know, we're all team parents here. All of our kids are in this activity together here, and we have found our people. Or, hey, my political party views it this way. Or even church. You see, the question is not whether or not you have found people that validate how you live your life, but the question is whether or not you are affirmed by the landowner. Whether or not you are right with God. And by living your life, saying, I want it, and I want to eat, drink, and be merry, you can be missing out on a lot. Your marriage may never be what God intended for it to be. You may not be parenting the way that is best for your children if you are not listening to God. You may never have true financial freedom as God designed it. And your purpose and your happiness may never be there. But do not miss, this text is primarily talking about our salvation and where we stand with God. And so today I'll ask you this question, does your life bear the fruit of the kingdom of God? Does your life bear the fruit of the kingdom of God? You know, we have what we call discipleship essentials at our church. They're not the way of saying this, or just a way, our way is better than no way, so that's why we have it. But they help us to see, is this our life? Do you worship God? Like, I don't mean do you sing songs that you like that we sing I mean do you surrender and so when you come to gather with your church family are you just abandoned and surrendered to God are you growing are you in his word do you view it as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path are you with other believers? Because the Bible tells us we need to be growing with other believers. Are you serving people? Are you giving? Are you generous? And are you reaching people? Are you proclaiming the same message which you said has captured your heart? I'll, I'll simplify this for you. Are you hearing and obeying God? 
I'll turn to John's gospel as I begin to close, and I want to read some more words of Jesus. Because this is what God wants from you. And this is what God wants for you, is a life of fruitfulness. John chapter 15, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Let me just say this to you. Sometimes it feels like you are being pruned, and you should praise God for that. He wants you to be more fruitful for his kingdom. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. It is God's word that purifies us. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If our allegiance and therefore dependence is not with the Son, we are not with God. If our allegiance and therefore dependence is not with the Son, we are not with God. This is most assuredly not impersonal. We are not Christian deists. God has entered into the story of human history and God has entered into the story of our lives so that we can walk with him and we can abide in him and we can bear much fruit. Jesus goes on. If you abide in me, and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Listen to these words. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Sometimes people wonder why we don't just focus more on practical things and pragmatic things and and I understand that and sometimes there are things in your life you have a need and you need help hey I need to get this fixed before I can move on it's hard to not focus on anything else I absolutely get that that's one of the beauty of life groups is you have people who you can talk to and say how did you do this I absolutely get that I try to talk about those things from here and there but the reason we must be gospel centered the reason we must be people of the word the reason the central focus of every single Sunday that we uh, gather together must be the gospel of Jesus Christ is because when we abide in him, our joy is full. It's not temporal or it's not superficial. It's not a quick fix. It's a deep abiding joy that we can have. That's why the son has come.
so that we can have that joy. And what you notice from our text is this. The beautiful picture is not that Jesus comes and you choose to reject him or you don't. The beautiful picture is this. You reject him and kill him and he comes back from the dead to come and rescue you again. That's the gospel message. And the judgment you deserve for killing him, he paid it for you. And the inheritance you wanted, it's his and he shares it with you. That's the message of Christ. And so listen to the call of the son to turn to him and let him work for you even though you were working against him. How crazy is that? Listen to the call of the son to turn to him and let him work for you that your joy might be full, his joy might be in you, even though you were working against him. You need Jesus in your life. He is the cornerstone with which God is building the kingdom, so he is most certainly what you should build your life upon. And we must come to the place where we recognize I took the things of God, I tried to use them for myself, and now God is giving me not my second chance, but my only chance. Will you listen to the call of the Son? And for the Christian, let me just say this. Sometimes... One of our biggest apprehensions to carrying the message of Christ is that we might be rejected by those who are around and our friends, and may we remember how Christ was rejected for us. And when we're rejected for Christ, when we're persecuted for Christ, we identify with the sufferings of God in a way that we may not in any other way. And so may we find our hope and our joy and our motivation in Christ's rejection by us and his pursuit of our hearts. And I pray, I pray that today you know the judgment of God is real. And you might be running, but you can't outrun it. But when you come to that place where you realize that you can't outrun the judgment of God, know that you cannot outrun the grace of God. And it is available to you today. Pray with me. Jesus, Thank you for the story that you shared. May our hearts be opened to what you're saying. God, you've planted the vineyard. You've put the fence up. You dug the press. And you just said, remember that it's mine. And God, we reject the reminder of what is true because of our sinful desires, even to the point of rejecting your son. But God, you're victorious. Death can't defeat you. Our sin can't defeat you. In fact, you took our sin with you to death and you raised to life eternal to show us the grace that is available to us. And I pray we know that today. I pray that those who might be aware of this for the first time would just turn to you and believe in you for salvation. And for the Christian who knows this for the thousandth time, may we be in all of it today just as we were the first time. May it spur us on to be fruitful for your kingdom. I pray this in our cornerstone, Jesus Christ's name, amen.